0: Before we start, if you could say your first and last name to make sure I pronounce it right. And if you'd like to give pronouns, give pronouns, that'd be great.
1: Hi, my name's John Muller.
0: Hello, and welcome to Shelf Healing, UCL's bibliotherapy podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Markwick. Our guest today is Professor John Mullen. Professor Mullen gained his PhD at Cambridge and was a research fellow and lecturer at Cambridge Colleges before moving to UCL in 1994. He has been a professor since 2005 and in 2016 was appointed lord northcliffe chair of modern english literature he was a judge for the 2009 book prize and has written on contemporary fiction for the guardian he's a specialist in 18th century literature and is currently writing a book the oxford english literary history which covers the period of 1709 to 1784 john has also got a, a large interest in jane austen and has published books on Austen and dickens Well, the first question to get us started is nice and easy. Do you feel that reading is therapeutic?
1: Well, I've been troubled by this question (laughs) ever since you asked me, Rebecca.
0: I thought you um, might be. (laughs) Um,
1: Because I suppose I've always thought that, in a way, all reading was therapeutic. That there was no reading which was sort of more or less therapeutic because I guess reading literature, anyway which is what mostly I do, in a way takes you out of your own life, makes you less self-centered, I suppose. So that even if it's ringing bells or twanging chords or bringing alive something that you think is familiar to you, it's doing it in a way that makes you share it with another imagination, another person, or maybe many other imaginations and persons. And therefore, if it's good writing, I think tends to make you less self-centered, I suppose. So in that way, you know, it, it, it should all be therapeutic. And even the books which have upsetting or tragic material in them, at least take you out of yourselves and but I was reading your email and I was thinking no but that's not what Rebecca means I can't come to shelf healing and say reading King Lear is therapeutic or reading Jude the Obscure is therapeutic because those are two examples of wonderful tragic literary works and they do sort of shake and devastate you, because they're supposed to. So for this exercise, I have tried to kind of think of literature, which I find either sort of consoling or escapist, or having a tendency to make life seem better than it is, rather than to awaken you to all that is most shuddering and tragic. In
0: it. Yes. I recently interviewed uh, Professor Kin and Ryan from Royal Holloway on Shakespeare. Oh, yes. And he went straight in with the, the tragedies are the most therapeutic. So it's... I l-
1: Yeah, well, there is, of course. <laughs> and he's right. But he's right in a way. He's right in a way that... And, and the ancient Greeks were right to think that there is a thing called catharsis. And I really believe that. And that, therefore, reading or even better seeing Hamlet or Oedipus Rex does cleanse you and purge you. I, I think they're absolutely right. And I think, if I may be controversial for a second, of course. some of our some critics and some of our some, some students are wrong to think as literature as sort of awakening bad things which which traumatize you. I think that great literature can be about traumatic material, but is not in itself traumatic, it's the opposite. So if Kiernan had a shelf-healing session which was entirely full of tragedies, I would defer to him. I think that is one way of looking at it, you know. And the the sort of alcoholic, bum, shambolic, womanising L.A. poet and writer Charles Bukowski, who was kind of an interesting man, although not always a very good person, but he summed it up. He said, "Without literature, life is hell." So, you know one of the one of the works of literature that I can't read, and it's in an original language, but which I find most sort of absorbing and ennobling, really is Dante's Inferno, which is about hell. It's about hell and torment. But it doesn't make you tormented and it doesn't make you think you live in hell. It's a wonderful sort of vindication of the human imagination and the human spirit. So the book, I haven't chosen tragic and hellish books, but I respect those who do.
0: So what kind of books do you reach for then when you want to?
1: Well, I suppose I have... I mean, the two things that you mentioned at the beginning that I've written about, which is best to get shot off right away because they're otherwise, you know, they'll just be lying in wait for us, which are my two favorite novelists. And they're the two novelists that I've most recently written books about are great places to go to not just soothe the soul, but actually to remind you how absurd life is rather than how terrible And that's Jane Austen and and Charles Dickens. I think lots of people find Jane Austen therapeutic, but actually I find it so not because because of the reasons that sort of say, I don't know, some journalists might sometimes think that, you know, oh, it's a lovely, ordered, safe world and everybody wears muslin and talks properly and has tea parties. Because actually, that inherited TV film version of Jane Austen is in some ways not at all true to the books. Jane Austen doesn't bother describing how people look, let alone what their clothes are like, or, and she doesn't really describe their houses or their gardens very much, have been in Mansfield Park, but not really in the others. But, but if it's therapeutic, it's because she seems to me the <laughs> the greatest of all novelists in her small domain because she makes you as clever and perceptive as she is while you're reading. And so she sort of alerts and electrifies all your faculties. And she said, she doesn't, she said somewhere that she doesn't write for people who have not a great deal of ingenuity themselves. And while you're reading, you have all her ingenuity and... Unfortunately, then you put the book down (laughs) and you (laughs) realise it was a borrowed ingenuity. You're not as perceptive as her. So she writes beautiful, elegant sentences. Yes, hardly a bum sentence in the whole of Austin. But almost everyone has sort of, I don't know how to describe it, dazzling, spinning little knives inside. And you can see that or you can you know, glide past it, but she wants you to see it. And that makes her a kind of wonderfully absorbing writer to read and one who sort of takes you out of yourself. And then Dickens, my other favourite, completely opposite in some ways, great, baggy, copious, plentiful, millions of characters, um, strands of subplots, but also a writer who, in a different way, every sentence is a pleasure. But with Dickens, it's usually fireworks rather than witty elegance. But I guess the thing about him, which is so to be recommended to anybody, is that he's terribly, terribly funny, I think. And often funny when he shouldn't be, you know. So he makes you laugh when you shouldn't laugh, which I think is, you know, at the core of most sort of great humour, and anybody listening to this, just try, I don't know, the opening chapter of Dombey and Son, which is a tragic deathbed. And the child Florence Dombey's mother is dying, having given birth to a baby. Her father, the sort of stern, hard-hearted Mr. Dombey, can't even express affection to his wife as she's dying. So this baby is doomed to be motherless from the word go. And it's, it's a Victorian deathbed, and it is really sad. But also, but meanwhile, interwoven with this, Mr. Dombey, because he's rich, has hired these sort of Harley Street doctors. And they're only they they only wait upon the aristocracy usually. And they're blundering around, they keep getting Mrs. Dombey's name wrong because they can't understand that she's not a duchess. And then there's an attendant nurse who's so terrified of Mr. Dombey that everything she says is phrased as a question because she doesn't have the courage to make a statement so she gives even her own name in the interrogative and it's terribly terribly funny because this is happening at such a sad moment not despite but because and it's just a little example but i think yeah dickens because of all great novelists he's the funniest
0: it's that weird juxtaposition isn't it between what should be especially in Dickens, what should be very sad is actually quite witty. And then you feel a little bit yeah. bad that you're laughing.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and not just what, what, what should be sad, sometimes what is, what is frightening. Mm. So the opening chapter of Great Expectations, which if you see it in you know, film or TV versions, is always frightening. The scene in the graveyard where the eight-year-old Pip meets the escaped convict on this bleak and lonely evening but actually as a in the book it's also funny because you know we see it through the childish eyes and there's a there's a there's a gibbet out on the marshes where pirates used to be hanged and the child thinks that um, you know that the convict is is going back to hang himself back up on the gibbet and and the cows look at him and think so too you know <laughs> and it, it there's comedy with the, the horror, too. And that's what he's so brilliant at.
0: Definitely. Is, is there a book in all of your life that has profoundly affected you?
1: Yes, yes, I think there is. I think, in a way, the one that affected me most, lots, lots of books profoundly affected me, but one that really has shaped my life, actually, is Tristram Shandy by Laurence Stern which is this wonderful sort of mid-18th century published in the 1760s in installments. And it's a sort of, it's an autobiography, fictional autobiography of Tristram Shandy, full title, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman. But Tristram, the narrator, who shares a lot in common with Lawrence Stern, who invented him, sits down and tries to write his life. And as soon as he starts to write, he starts thinking, oh, well, what, as we all do, So where do I start? Now, David Copperfield starts at the moment of David Copperfield's birth. But actually, Tristram Shandy, um, more accurately, starts at the moment of Tristram's conception. And for your shockable listeners, I can tell you the very moment of his conception. And And then it goes backwards to to explain how he could possibly know about the moment of his conception and who his father was and his uncle and what weird eccentrics they were. And, um, and you get to, it takes, you know, uh, two or three volumes of the book for Tristram even to get born. And it's an amazingly digressive, mock-learned, also very funny, very, very clever book, which is written by this obscure 18th century clergy, but he's never written a novel before and it brilliantly uses all sorts of experimental typography to kind of reproduce things that words can't say it's got blank pages and black pages somebody dies the page goes black uh, a beautiful woman enters i'm not sure i can describe it her. here's a blank page fill it with your own description fill it with your own description a man waves a stick in the air to indicate the freedom that comes from being unmarried and you get the twirl of the end of the stick on the page. It's all sorts of extraordinary things going on. And if it had been published in the 20th century, it would have been called the most experimental modernist novel in history. But it was published in the middle of the 18th century. And it's the book which got me into academia, I'm afraid, Rebecca. It's a book, but more specifically, it's the book which made me realize that the 18th century was an incredible place where people were cleverer funnier and more audacious than any of us ever managed to
0: be. And you've got, I think, similar publication time. I may be wrong. It's a long time since I studied my undergraduate. But there's that wonderful book, The Confessions of an English Eater," which is... Oh, yes, that's slightly, slightly later, later yes, early 19th century. Yeah. Yes. But just like, what a yeah. great title for a book, and that's yes. wild. But yes, as a professor of literature, do you find this has affected the way in which you can read in a therapeutic manner? Does that critical analyst in you ever fade away into the background? Or?
1: No, that's a good question. I don't think it does, actually, in a way. I, I mean, I think that, you know, the novelist Vladimir Nabokov said, you, you know, he said, you enjoy, by which he meant he enjoyed, you enjoy a book more if you see how it works. Now, not everybody will feel that, but I feel that. So, so for instance, you know, I... Um, I found myself during lockdown reading, you know, what you might call very escapist, some very escapist books, because, I mean, we weren't going out, we weren't doing anything. I got bored with TV. So actually, I did, I think, like quite a lot of people, I think during the pandemic lockdown, I read a lot more just for fun or diversion than I would normally. And Amongst other things, I read, I, I enjoy detective novels, whodunits, thrillers. So I sort read some Agatha Christie and P.D. James. And, but when I read those, I mean, Agatha Christie, I, I really enjoy Agatha Christie. But as I read it, the pleasure for me it, it is that although it's stylistically not particularly wonderful and it's psychologically quite simple. You know, it's not Middlemarch. <laughs> However, the plotting is really clever and the use of sort of, yeah, the, the plotting, and particularly I find I'm fascinated by her use of chronology of times and dates, because of course, usually it's a Poirot. He'll always be saying, so what time did this happen? How, can you remember what time it was? Because it's, it's all about timings her, her novels, and I can't help but be switched on to that. I can't couldn't help when I was reading some of these novels, thinking, oh, I can use that in my in my lecture on sort of chronology in modern fiction or something, you know. So I'm afraid I'm a bit like that. And I think when you when I read let's call them thrillers or who or detective novels, I think I do slightly read them as a literary critic, and that's why I enjoyed them. I read in during lockdown a new writer to me who just I read because she was a friend of a friend, Um, Sabine Durrant, a a thriller by her called um, Lie. Is it Lie With Me? I think it's called. And it's about a man who's a congenital liar but who tricks his way into a relationship. But of course, you know, he is himself being tricked because you know from the cover what kind of book this is. And you know that thing, it's, you get the same thing when you're watching Line of Duty on TV. You're playing away a game with the author of this. You're guessing or trying to outguess them in the ways they've used the convention of the, of the thriller. And, and I, I really enjoyed that. And I think that's quite an analytical enjoyment. Even though I'm reading things, I'm never going to teach these things very much. But, you know, when I read P.D. James... Udanitz. I don't think she's a great writer, but she's a very enjoyable writer because she invites you in to play the game of, of, of clue spotting with her.
0: Mm. I think that's a particular draw, isn't it, to the thriller crime genre is a good writer, like you say, maybe isn't the greatest stylist, but they they engage you, they draw you into the novel and make you kind of a part of that, working it out will it be a shock? Will you guess before the end? Will you yeah. guess correctly? Yeah. Which I think is really lovely when you are reading sort of for fun, like you said, that's a, a great journey to go on.
1: Yeah. That, and, and actually, it's a pleasure, which isn't, it, it, it is there in some great literature, you know, Um, So if you read my perhaps my favorite novel novel of all time, I've just done a new edition of it, Jane Austen's Emma. I don't know if I should spoil it for those benighted individuals who haven't yet read it. But anyway, almost all the novel's seen through the eyes of the main character, Emma, although it's told in the third person. It's not told in her voice, but it's seen through her very limited and often self-deceived vision of things. And there's another story going on between two of the other characters, which, if it had been a different novel, they might have been the main characters. And when you read it for the first time, if you haven't seen the film or the TV, or a TV version, or if nobody's told you, the first-time reader, and I know this is the case because one of my daughters did this, won't guess, they won't guess until a certain revealing point what's been going on between these two characters but the second time you read it, you can see all the clues are there but you like emma were too blind to notice and actually that detective story writer i referred to pt james you once gave a rather entertaining talk that i heard in which she treated emma as if it exactly was a whodunit a detective novel you know and it works perfectly as that. So that kind of pleasure in sort of clue spotting isn't just limited to detection novels, I think.
0: Definitely. And you've said you love Emma. Are there any books that you kind of return to over and over again, like like comfort food, but a book? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, I, I've
1: been thinking about that. And I mean, there is one which is a, a, a big one for me, And I'm hesitating slightly because I know it's a book that some people, to me, bizarrely, say they find really, you know, uh, hard or daunting. Um, You know, one of those books, one of those great big books that people, you know, like, I don't know, Moby Dick or The Magic (laughs) Mountain, which people think they should have read. But as soon as they try to read it, you know, they get bogged down. Mm. And that... And yet, to me, it's nothing like that. And that's George Eliot's Middlemarch. It does have long sentences. It does. It, does. it does. <laughs> it does have some long sentences. But so does something else. I find wonderful, Proust, um, um, À la recherche du temps perdu. Um, uh, but the I, I difference being that I, my French isn't really good enough to read the Proust in French. I read it in English. I mean, I can read a bit in French, but I have to really read it in English, where the long sentences are translations of French long sentences, whereas Middlemarch's long sentences are all just as George Eliot meant them. But actually, I find it, um, perhaps I'm just used to it, but I've read it lots of times, and I return to it uh, exactly in order to become totally absorbed. I mean, quite often I return to it because I have to reread it because I'm teaching it or something. And that's a happy, that's my happy fate, I guess, of my, my job. But whenever I do, I just am completely sucked into this. The length of a sentence is, the length of the book is part of the point. You're part of a community of people and that famous George Eliot thing that, um, you know, there's lots of centres of, there's lots of centers of consciousness in the book. So um, it's not just a story of one person. There are at least sort of seven or eight main characters whose fates are equally important. And their stories are kind of elaborately entangled in this place, Middlemarch, this imagined place. And, um, you know, Virginia Woolf famously said it was, you know, the only novel for grown-up people, and by which I think she meant something like, you know, no, there are no villains, no heroes, no heroines. Everybody is, to use a word I use far too often in life, complicated. Everybody's complicated. And there's room for endless psychological subtlety and contradiction. And, it, it, you know, it's absolutely wonderful. Um And it's not all happy at all. There's comedy in it, and there's there's some there's a sort of happy ending for one of the main characters. But but because it's George Eliot, it's about ordinary people's lives. So even tragedy is muted or qualified, and you just inhabit other people's lives in a way that I think no other novel that I've come across. Makes you do, maybe Tolstoy does it a bit, and you know, something like Anna Karenina. Um, but yeah, maybe those those two. Anna Karenina is, is tragic, though, whereas Middlemarch is about a kind of life that anybody can recognize.
0: Yeah. I managed Middlemarch once and I, I have not tackled oh. I haven't had the courage to go at it again because, like you said, it's so engaging. I, I'm a multiple book at one time reader. So you cannot do that with Middlemarch because Middlemarch itself is, like you said, there's seven or eight characters with their own different stories that are entangled. That takes yeah. up all of your brain space, for me at yeah. least. I can't be reading Middlemarch and seven other books. I, I'd have to read Middlemarch all in one.
1: That's, no, that's very true. I agree. I think you absolutely have to. You need to take it all and perhaps at a time when you're actually able to give it, a good old hour or two every day rather than just 10 minutes before you fall asleep. Mm.
0: You've written lots of books and we've talked about some of them. Do you find that writing is therapeutic? And if you do, you can say no. If you do, is it therapeutic in a similar way as when you read things or is it a different type of therapeutic?
1: Oh, is writing therapeutic? I, I, I think, I, think I do find it so. I mean, first of all, because if I'm writing something which is, especially if it's going to have to be published, it's incredibly absorbing. You have to really concentrate. So suddenly three hours have gone and you didn't give a single thought to whatever it was that was upsetting or worrying you before you sat down. So whatever was upsetting and worrying or worrying you hasn't gone away, but it went away for that time. And perhaps that's therapeutic. But also, yeah, I enjoy enjoy writing. And when I, now I'm, I, I hesitate to say this because it's hubristic, but I'll try it anyway. When I started off in my academic career, I probably wrote things in order to try to impress people to get them to give me jobs, really. I mean, that's, that's what you do when you're a young ac- academic and you know, you're looking for your next job or for promotion or whatever it is. And I don't do that anymore. And I write, I mean, the last two books I've I've written on Austen and on Dickens were, I hope they were reasonably scholarly, but they were designed to be readable and I hope enjoyable even by people who just like Austen and Dickens. They don't have to be students, they don't have to have exams, let alone be doing PhDs. And these weren't books which were particularly aimed at other academics either. In fact, I was reconciled to the fact that some of my some of my other academics might find quite irritating um, because they're very because they were designed to be readable and and so that is quite in, you know that is enjoyable and in that sense possibly yes they're repeated because I'm writing to share my enjoyment of the the writers I'm writing about. And, and I'm trying to do that in my own writing, you know, and not always successfully, but, but, but <laughs> that's what I try to do. So, I, yes, I, I think I, I, I think that I feel better after I've done it, if, it, if it's worked, if I think it's worked.
0: Yeah, You've written many books on specific authors and their works, as we've mentioned, Austen and Dickens most recently. Do you find that the research reading that goes into that is therapeutic at all? Or is it a very different experience when you're reading for research as opposed to reading for pleasure?
1: Well, I think it depends what kind of research it is. I think reading other academic criticism, which perhaps isn't really what I would call research, is often gruesome. Not always, <laughs> um, but it's, if, if you're tapping into a writer who shares your own enthusiasm but knows more than you, that's great. But a lot of academic literary criticism is really badly written, I think. And that's taken me a while to sort of... <laughs> to to realise that, and I'd include some of the things, you know, I wrote in my early parts of my career. So that aspect of research isn't particularly enjoyable. But, for instance, when I was writing my Dickens book, I did quite a lot, I spent quite a lot of time looking at the manuscripts of some of Dickens's novels, and which are mostly in the art library of the Victorian Albert Museum. Um, and which he preserved quite carefully and left his friend, John Forster, who left them to the museum. And that is quite sort of <laughs> quite hard work. The manuscripts are very difficult to decipher. And that's one of the reasons you have to look at them in the flesh, as it were, because if you look at them online, you really just can't see them at all. However good your screen, however pixelated, however minutely pixelated. But I did, yeah, that is really absorbing because you're sort of, <laughs> you know, uh, you're watching genius in action, really. Gosh, if only we had Jane Austen's manuscripts, but anyway, or Shakespeare's oh, manuscripts. Oh, wouldn't they
0: be amazing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, but goodness. we've got
1: Dickens's, almost a lot of them. And so that is, yeah, that is absolutely fascinating and, and pleasurable.
0: Mm. And as a professor at UCL, you look at quite a wide range of eras of novel do you ever approach these differently depending on when they were written? Do you go for those 18th century novels with a slightly different more as you said earlier that they're brilliantly modern and experimental and enjoyable. When you're then looking at a modern contemporary novel, do you do you come at it with a kind of a different frame of mind that perhaps affects how you read? Yes, I suppose I
1: do. I suppose I do come at it with a different frame of mind, but it's very it's difficult for me I think to analyse that, because I'm so used to it, I'm so used to, say, reading books from the past, and in my, in my academic work, I mostly read books from before the 20th century, let alone before the 21st century. So I'm lucky in a way. I don't get... I think I'm lucky that I'm used to being able perhaps to sometimes see my way round preoccupations that writers had because of the times they lived in, maybe. And I'm aware of this sometimes when I'm teaching undergraduates who have to be helped,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, to, not to judge writers always by standards of, of you know the standards of their own day, but then equally when i read when I read novelists who are writing now, perhaps I am less forgiving if they are if they resort to certain stereotypes about people from particular classes or women or particular countries or you know I, it's much less easy to put up with that when the novelist has had every reason to be more enlightened. So uh, I think, I'm, yes, I'm perhaps I'm more tolerant and forgiving when I read books written in the past.
0: Mm. And to finish off what, a, what has been a wonderful chat? is there a specific piece of writing or book or academic essay or anything that you would recommend to people that you think is sort of brilliant to go for for reading for pleasure for fun for enjoyment well i tell you
1: what i tell you what i would recommend partly because those listening to this might not otherwise have thought of it okay because it's it's probably i'm not going to recommend a bit of jane austen or dickens because everybody knows they're really very very good and i'm i'm not going to recommend you know uh we've talked mostly about novels. I'm not going to recommend famous poems that people might already have read, but I recommend two things. Am I allowed two?
0: You can have two, yes. Okay.
1: The first is sort of my favourite poem um, because we've talked almost entirely, I think, about novels. And actually, I think uh, a lot of people find poetry therapeutic. And there's one great poem, which is perhaps daunting in the way that Middlemarch is, but which combines the sort of absorbingness of a great novel with the beauty and eloquence of, you know, words at their highest pitch that you get from poetry. And I know it can't just be me because it's my wife's favourite poem as well. And that's Wordsworth's The Prelude. And it's weird that I love that so much because perhaps rather like Moby Dick, it's one of those rare examples of a great, great work of literature which doesn't have any humour in it or pretty much no humour, which (laughs) is usually a bad sign. But anyway, a poem about the poet's youth and childhood, but actually about all our childhoods and about the activity of memory and how strange it is, how we remember some things and not others, and how we're shaped and formed by memory. And it's just absolutely wonderful. And you only have to read the first 50 lines. And if you're not hooked, well, I'm sorry for you. (laughs) The other thing when it comes to novels that I thought I might recommend is something a writer I've read a lot of in lockdown, and I've actually been sort of reading my way through a complete works because I realised how few of them I'd, I, I'd read or could remember reading. And also, this is a novelist who writes very short novels. So most of them are about 150 pages long. So, you know, you can think, oh, I'm going to read another of her novels today, almost. And that's Muriel Spark. And I, 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 I thought a lot about whether I should mention her in this conversation, because in one way, she's not therapeutic. She's a merciless writer. She's not a kind writer. And it's not a cruel writer, but a merciless one. She writes brilliantly about human vanities and weaknesses and how human beings prey upon each other in very ordinary circumstances. But she, like Jane Austen, makes you as sharp-eyed as she is while while you're reading her. And for me, it's been a real rediscovery in the last year reading her novels. They're very, some of them are very odd and experimental. And I'm just wondering how I thought she was this rather genteel Scottish lady when she writes the most daring and weird kinds of narrative. But read a novel like Girls of Slender Means or Symposium and you'll see what a virtue, mercilessness in a novelist can be.
0: Brilliant. Well, I will pop links to your most recent books, to all of the books that we've mentioned, to these lovely recommendations. I'll pop those in the show notes. Thank you very much for a very entertaining and lively discussion. It's fabulous. Thanks, as always, to Nicholas Patrick for our music. Please check us out on Twitter at underscore shelfhealing. Leave us a review and a rating on your podcast player of choice. We'd really appreciate it. I'll be back next week with another episode of Shelf Healing.